Sweet. So John's gospel, we're just carrying on, on this, uh, through this account of Jesus last evening uh, with his disciples uh, before he was crucified. John chapter 14, 15, 16, and now 17. Just tell us about that private time that Jesus was having uh, with the disciples on that last, that very last evening. And so it kind of goes like this. Like I'll just kind of run you through it a little bit because we've been, we've been in this section of scripture for quite a while but earlier uh that evening jesus had washed the feet of the 12 he had exposed judas as the betrayer he had shared with them the last supper he had commanded them to participate in a new commandment that they love one another as he had loved them and that that this would be the sign to everyone to the world that they were his disciples by their love for one another. Uh, Jesus had declared to them that he was the way, the truth, and the life. He had told them that Peter was going to deny him. He had promised to them the Holy Spirit. And then he had gotten up from the dinner table and led the eleven with Judas now departed out. And as they walked and journeyed through the streets of Jerusalem, he continued to teach them. He told them, I am the true vine. He called them to abide in him, to make their home in him. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So you have to abide in me, guys. You've got to come to me for your nourishment and your life and abide, abide in my love. He told them, he declared to them that the world would hate them because it had hated him. He told them about the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, convicting with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. He told them about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He told them that he was leaving and that they would sorrow, but he would return and their sorrow would be turned to joy. And he said this to them, in this world you will have trouble, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You're in the world or you're in me, so take heart. I've overcome the world. And I just think about that as like I rattle through that. Like what a tsunami of teaching, don't you think? Like, whoa, to be overwhelmed and to be in the presence of Jesus for that evening and just have him teaching all of these things. And so what happens next as we come to John 17 is this, is that Jesus stops and he begins to pray. And I think that's amazing because... Um, you know what, sometimes I wonder what it would be like to just listen to Jesus pray. Like we think about what we, reading this in the Gospels, that he would slip away early in the morning or while it was still dark, he'd be gone, he'd go and find a, a private place and time unto himself and he'd begin to pray and spend time with the Father and it'd be like, wow, to be, you know, a fly on the wall in that area and just listen to Jesus pray to the Father. And, and it's like, in, all throughout the Gospels, what do we get? We get little clips and short little prayers but, that Jesus gives. But John 17 is so amazing because we get this whole long prayer of Jesus. We get insight into the life of Je into Jesus' prayer life. Now, as I think about this, you know, by this time, this evening with, with the disciples, it's probably like, floating around midnight, it's probably just after midnight, something like that. They're still on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it's the very day that Jesus would be crucified. 
Jesus and his disciples, again, just to get the context, they've, they've left the upper room. They're walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane through the streets of Jerusalem. And it seems to me like, as you read this, well, I, I actually think that they were near, probably near the temple. Uh, it seems that most likely they're around the temple. They maybe are even possibly walking through the outer courtyard of the temple near the area where the high priest would actually offer his prayers for God's people, children of Israel. It's already the early hours of the Passover, day of the Passover, the day of atonement. And on the day of atonement, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us details about what would go down on the day of atonement. Uh, the, the high priest would offer the, the sacrifice. It was an annual thing. He would offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would present that blood before the Lord. He would put it on the, on the mercy seat. And atonement would be made for the sins of God's people. But before the high priest would ever do that, the high priest would do this. And Leviticus chapter 16 tells us all about it. That every year on that special day, the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel would enter the temple and he would offer three prayers first. He'd pray for himself. He'd pray for his family, his, the, the other priests. And then he would pray for all of, all of the people of God. And then he would come out, then he would leave that prayer time and he would kill the sacrifice and present the blood to the Lord. That was the practice on the day of atonement. So it seems to make sense that Jesus, our great high priest, he's following the same pattern. He's deliberately taking that place and that role of a high priest. And in this prayer, John chapter 17, you see him, he offers three prayers. He prays for himself. He prays for his immediate disciples, the apostles. And he prays for all, the, all who will come to faith through them, all of God's people. And, and then after that, after that prayer, the difference between him and the high priests of the Old Testament was this, that he didn't go and kill an animal for a sacrifice. He presented himself as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And, and, uh, and so this is why this chapter is called the high priest prayer, probably in your Bible. That's what it's titled, the high priest prayer, because Jesus is following the same pattern on the day of atonement. So let's check it out. He prays first for himself. And, he, and he, he prays that uh, he would be glorified, that the Father would be glorified. And he declares to the Father that the work is finished, that all that has been given to him is finished. So let's check it out. Verse 1, chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. It's interesting, throughout John we've seen this, that, that at different times Jesus said, that it's not the time, it's not the hour. The very first miracle in John chapter 2, when his mother came to him and said, they've run out of wine. He said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then she told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And 
the miracle of the wine happened. But he said, my hour has not come. Jesus lived on the Father's timetable. And now, three years later, since that wedding feast in the village of Cana, the hour had come, and Jesus began by praying for himself. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And I think about that. I, I hear that prayer, you know, and he's praying for himself. And, and you know, it's not a selfish thing, obviously, to, to pray for yourself. Jesus prayed that God would glorify him in such a way that the Father would receive uh, the glory. We've seen this, we've seen this throughout these, this section of John's gospel that Jesus was always concerned with the Father, with the Father's glory. It's a, it's a good thing to ask the Father for help. Father, I need your help to bring you glory. Would you help me? Would you glorify me so that I can glorify you? Give me more, Lord, and I'll give you more. That's what Jesus was praying. Give me more energy, Lord. Give me more time. I, I've heard several pastors lately, some one friend of mine and one who's not. One, one friend of mine has been praying this. He's, he's just over 50. He's been saying, Lord, give me 30 more years for your kingdom and for your name and for your glory. And I talk to him. He inspires me when he tells me that. You know, I heard Greg Laurie speak. You guys know Greg Laurie who does the Harvest Crusades. I, I, I heard Greg talking about his fervor to preach the gospel that he's never had greater fervor than he has right now. And he's praying that it will not pass, that he, till his very last breath, that God would give him the privilege of proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. He's saying, Father, glorify yourself in me that you may be glorified. And I think that's a wonderful thing to, to pray. I'm going to spend, Lord, the rest of my life and the rest of my strength on proclaiming the name of Jesus. Help me, Lord, to do that so that you would receive glory. That's like the prayer of Jesus right here. Jesus was right to, to pray this. And it's, you know, you think about it, for 33 years, his glory had been hidden. When Jesus came to earth, his glory had been hidden. The, the, the writings of Paul tell us he had left his glory behind. And all the people could see was this, you know, this little village carpenter, Jesus, who they saw grow up in Nazareth, who became this, this traveling preacher. But the glory was not there. Only once did Peter and James and John have the privilege of getting a glimpse of Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember that Moses and Elijah appeared before him and, and those three disciples that were with Jesus on top of that mountain and Jesus was transformed. He underwent a metamorphosis in their presence and he began to shine as bright as the sun. That's what the Gospels tell us. And and. They got a glimpse of his glory. But his glory had been hidden. So he prays, Lord, give me glory. Give me the glory that I've used to have, that, that the glory that I had with you in your presence before the world began. Let that glory come again, Lord. God answered the prayer. I mean, it wasn't that many months later. We don't know exactly that Saul, remember Saul of Tarsus? traveling to Damascus and he had a, a vision of the glory of Jesus and he was knocked right from his horse. He was blinded. Jesus was shining so brightly with the glory of God. Saul had to be healed. He had to have a physical healing. 
because he had seen the glory of God. And, and Jesus, as he praised this, I, I think he was, being, he was asking to be glorified in his death. Father, glorify me that you may receive glory. You know, when you think about crucifixion, crucifixion is a painful thing, obviously. Like, and not only painful, crucifixion was designed and meant to be something that was totally humiliating for the person who was being crucified. It was a lesson to everyone who would come along and, and, and see these things. Not only painful, but humiliating. The person who was being crucified would be hung there naked. And we, you know, we have this picture in our minds that they were hung way up high on a cross, but that was not actually the idea that, that in a Roman crucifixion you were just off the ground. The idea was so that people could come and look you in the eyes and spit in your face. That they could mock you and hurl insults upon you and throw their food at you or whatever it was, however they wanted to humiliate you. That's what the cross was designed to do, not just to torture you and bring you to death, but to humiliate you. And Jesus prays this prayer, Father, glorify me with the glory that I, I, I had with you in heaven. Take, take that which the world would think is humiliating and glorify your name. Glorify me, Father. I, I, I think about the cross, the the cross is the glory of God. The cross is the power of God. That which the world designed for pain and humiliation, the Father turned into power and glory for his name and for his son's name. You know, think about it. When you see Jesus on a cross, maybe you like see some picture or some painting of Jesus on a cross. Do you think of humiliation? Do you think of pain? No, the first thing you probably think of is the glory of God. The glory of God. You know, we, we uh, were in the city this week picking up Jonah home from Bible college and we went and uh, crashed at Lisa's mom's house and she has this picture hanging in, the, in her bedroom that my brother-in-law painted. He's an artist, but he doesn't know Jesus and he painted a picture of the crucifixion. And Jesus is kind of suspended in the air and wrapped around him is the hand of God. I was looking at it the other day. I'm like, wow, this is so amazing. Thinking that, that my brother-in-law who doesn't know Jesus painted this and what he wasn't, he wasn't painting pain and humiliation. He, he was painting the glory of God even though he doesn't know Jesus. It's in the cross that the glory of God is seen. And so Jesus says, Father, the, the hours come, the appointed day, 33 years has passed. But the sovereign plan of God was being fulfilled. People were going to humiliate him, but he said, Father, you glorify, you glorify me and I'll give it back to you. Not only did Jesus ask to be glorified by death, he was, he was asking to be glorified to life, that his death would bring life for those who put their hope in him. Not only did the cross lead to to death, but it led to life. It led to the resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's, it's by the cross and the resurrection that eternal life can be given to so many who will put their faith in Jesus Christ. It was 
A tragedy turned into a triumph and what had the appearance of bringing him down has led to him being glorified. What could have brought him down, what would have brought any other man or woman down resulted in Jesus being lifted up and all men being drawn to him. Look again at verse 2. It says this, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that you know him, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I love that verse, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus said to the Father as he prayed, he said, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh. You have given me authority over all people. I I think about that, you know, like, imagine having authority over all the people on the earth. I I mean, history, in history, there's been many dictators who have sought that. Uh, You could go down the list, I just think of different, you know, Mao, Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, these, these dictators, and what did they do with their power? What, what, were, what was the end and their goal of having all of this power, and what was the fruit of it? You, you go down the list, and the fruit of those men having power was that people died, and millions and millions and millions of people died. That's what power does in the hands of a, a human. But but when Jesus is given authority over all flesh, what, who dies? Jesus lays down his life. He goes to the cross. So he says, Father, you, you've given me authority over all flesh, and you've given me the authority to give to them eternal life. We, we know John 3.16 that the Father so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whosoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. The father loved the world, so he gave his son. And the son so loved the father that he gave the father people. He gave you to the father. He brought you to the father. The father gave Jesus to the world so that Jesus could give the world to the father. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel like to think if you, if you belong to Jesus this morning, if, if you're here and you know Jesus Christ, you, Jesus has done this. Jesus gave you to the Father. You know the Father because Jesus gave you to the Father. It's like, here, Father, here's a Christmas gift for you. That's awesome, isn't it? A Christmas gift for you, Father. And Jesus gave us this, life, abundant, eternal life. What's eternal life? What is eternal life? Is it like just, is it to live forever? Does it mean to never get old? You know, is eternal life like to discover the fountain of youth? We wish. You know, is it friends? Is it a party? Like what, what, what is eternal life? Jesus says this. He gives us the definition of of what eternal life is. This is really misunderstood, actually, what eternal life is. He said eternal life is to have a personal relationship with the Father and with the Son. To have a relationship with the Father and with Jesus. And if you don't have that, I 
I'll just tell you this. If you don't know Jesus, you actually don't know what it is to really live. You might have life, but you're not living. You're not living. You, You don't know what it is to live if you don't know Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, then guess what? You're alive forever. Your life is eternal. It's that simple. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That, that word know speaks of intellectual knowledge, but uh, speaks, sorry, not of intellectual knowledge, but it speaks of knowing by experience. It's actually a picture of the intimacy of of sex between a man and a woman that it's it's the closest possible relationship that you can have someone with someone to not just jesus says no i just don't want you this isn't knowing the father and knowing the son this isn't something that's theological that's just that's just in your head it's the knowledge of experience to have a deep relationship with god is is to know jesus like you know your spouse the knowledge of experience. You know, last night we were, uh, we were playing some games. We were over at uh, Martin and Leanne's place and having some fun. And, and I'm a little bit competitive when you play some games. And I got exposed a little bit last night. And I was competing against my wife. And she had beat me three times, three rounds. But then it was my turn. And uh, I let her know that I won the round, you know. And it doesn't matter that I lost three but I just let her know, and I could just see her face. I, could, I got her, man. Like, I was bugging her. And I knew it, you know, maybe nobody else in the room knew it, but I knew I had her goat. And, uh, you, you know, it's because she's my wife. I know her. Nothing had to be said. I saw it in her eyes. I thought, okay, I better stop. <laughs> Jesus says, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's not intellectual knowledge that we're to know Jesus with, but to know him. To know him with that kind of love. And I think about that, that he, he, that he makes this claim that eternal life is found in the Father, in, in a relationship with the Father, and with him. And we've seen in this gospel that Jesus said, there's only one way to the Father. It's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one true God. And you can, you can study religion and study you know, theology and study the false gods of religion. You can be convinced that they exist. You can worship them. You can bring sacrifice and offering to them and and do different things, but real life, here's the difference, real life does not come from those gods. And if you ask someone who's like involved in other religions or worship of other gods, you ask them and you begin to ask questions, you discover this, that they're still on a, a certain level of search. Still looking for life, but they don't find it in all of their searching. Look at Jesus said this, if you come to know him and the father, you will know life, real life, eternal life. That's the difference between Jesus and every other religion or God. 
And so this is what brings Jesus glory. So he says, Father, bring me glory. Bring me the glory that I had in eternity before I came. Bring me glory in my death. Father, bring me glory in my life so that others will realize who you are. You've, you've given, I, I, I'll show them your glory and I will give to them life and I will present them to you. Father, if you glorify me, I will glorify you. And then he began to pray for his disciples. In verse 6, he prayed for his disciples that God would keep them and that God would sanctify them. Let's read this whole section, 6, six to 19. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I have glorified and I am glorified in them. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now... I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. It's not a beautiful prayer for those 11 men. Praise, Jesus prays for these 11 men that are God's gift to him. Think about these 11 men in this prayer. Every church in the history of the world, every person who ever came to faith in Jesus came through these 11 men and because of this prayer. It's amazing. And the son tells the father two things about these men. Firstly, he says, Father, I've done something for them. He tells the father what he's done for them. He says, I introduced these men to you. I manifested you to them, Father. I revealed who you are to them. They know you because I gave them your word so that they can know you. The word, the word in Greek is not word logos, written word. It's rhema, the spoken word. I spoke words that were from you, Father, and they came to believe because I revealed your glory to them. You know, only Jesus can do that for you. Only Jesus can introduce 
the Father to you. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. You have to go to Jesus if you want to know who the Father is. And how do you get to know someone? It's through their words. Through the things that they say, their, their words reveal their heart, their, world, their words reveal their, their thoughts. God's, and God's normal way of introducing himself to someone is through his word. That's how you get to know someone. And if someone won't talk to you, then you know, it's kind of like, well, I can't get to know this person. They won't, they won't talk to me. You won't get to know them, but Jesus says, I've given them, Father, I gave these men your, your words so they know you now. And it's shocking to me as I read this, like how clearly and definite Jesus is like, they know you, they know your will. That's how it is. It's like matter of fact. But the second thing that Jesus uh, tells the Father about these men is what they had done with him. Jesus says, they've received your word, Father. Verse 7 and 8. They received your word. Let's read it again. Verse 7 and 8. Says this. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They received the word. That's what these, these men did. They believed it, they obeyed it. Therefore, Jesus says, they know. They know the truth. That's how, that's how knowledge comes. Not just by hearing the word of God, but by hearing and receiving it. By hearing the word of God and believing it and receiving it and obeying it. And then Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He says about these men, they know God and they know your will, Father. They know you because they received and believed and obeyed the word of God. Jesus makes two more amazing statements about these about this to the Father he, he, in this prayer. He says, then he says something that kind of shocks me. He says, I'm not praying for the world. Did you catch that? I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for them, verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. You know, that shocks me, but to stop and think about it, you know the best prayer that you could ever pray for the world? is for God's people. Is for God's people to live in, in fervor and have a heart and uh, a relationship with Jesus that's alive and real and passionate and, and lively. When Jesus prays this, you know, the truth is the world, as we've seen in John's gospel, the world does not belong to God. And so the best thing that you can do for this world is pray for those who do belong to God. You know, Paul's prayers are a wonderful example of this. All throughout the New Testament, when you, when you like read Paul's prayers, is he praying for the lost? No, he's praying for God's people. For maturity, for growth, for depth, for understanding of God's word, for understanding of the things of the spirit, for, for power. He, he's praying for maturity, for growth in the church. Now that doesn't mean we don't pray for the lost. I'm not saying don't pray for the lost. Please don't think that. But when Jesus looked at the world, the world for which he was about to die, he concentrated his prayer on those who were going to go out and win the world for him and for his glory and for his name. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 for a second.
Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus said there's a need to pray for workers. The people were all right there. He says the the fields are white under harvest. There's no problem with the harvest. No problem with the harvest. What there is is a need for workers, for laborers, for the kingdom. Harvest Harvest workers because the fields are white unto harvest. And, and, and so, I, look at I would encourage you in your prayer life, pray for God's people. Pray for their maturity. Pray for their growth. Pray for their effectiveness in sharing the gospel. Pray for them to, to have opportunities to share Jesus. The, the fields are white unto harvest. We need laborers. And Jesus prayed for these 11 laborers. Another amazing thing that Jesus says about them is in verse 10. He, sa- he says of them that all I have is yours and all you have is, is mine. About the Father, check it out in verse 10. He says, all mine are yours or all I have are yours and yours are mine. I like how the NIV says it. It says, all I have are yours and, and all you have are mine and I am glorified in them. You know, only Jesus could, could pray verse 10, but as, as, as followers of Jesus, I think we should pray like this. And notice the order. Jesus says this, Father, everything that I have is yours. That's a good prayer. Father, everything I have is yours. I give it to you. I surrender. My life, my possessions, my money, my family, my spouse, my future, I surrender everything to Jesus. All I have is yours. But the exciting thing about this is the second thing that Jesus prayed there in verse 10. Because if I can say everything that I have is God's, then everything that I have belongs to the Father. I have everything that I have because the Father gave it to me. It doesn't belong to me. If you give everything you've got to him, then you can expect to have everything that he has at your disposal. That makes for powerful prayer. Jesus, all I have, it's yours. I give it to you. You can have everything of me, Jesus. You can have all of me, Jesus, so that all, is your, all that is yours is now mine because you gave it to me. And I can, I can share it. This is what Jesus was doing, you know. Everything I have, Father, you gave it to me. I give it to you. So now what I have belongs to you. It's at my disposal, and I use it for your glory and for your name and for that I can, so that I can share it with my disciples. You know, I would just challenge you. If you want to give a blessing to others, give all of yourself to the Lord. Christmas, you want to be a blessing to others? Give yourself to Jesus. You give yourself to Jesus and the riches of heaven, the kingdom get given to you. 
realize this. Give yourself to Jesus and realize that everything the Father has is yours and then you can just go out and share what you have. Look again at verse 11. He says this, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Here's another reason Jesus prayed for his disciples. He said, I'm going to go out of this world, and I'm going to leave these men in it. And so his concern was this, that the world is dangerous. The world is dangerous. The world is dangerous for disciples of Jesus. Jesus was approaching the cross. He would soon be free from the world's temptations. Jesus would be free from the world's pressures. Jesus knew temptation and pressure. He'd be free from those, but the 11... They would still have to live for him in the midst of pressure and temptation and weakness. Jesus was going to go back to, to, to the glory he had, but they weren't going to go, you know, to the glory he had with the Father, but they weren't going to go till later. And you get this, as you read this, it's like Jesus is like, man, it's been a battle to keep these guys, Father, just so you know. Not the sharpest tools in the shed that you've equipped me with here. It's been a battle to get them to this point, but guess what? I'm done. The work's finished. Father, I did manage to lose one. I lost one. But I, I, he, he says, I, I didn't manage to keep one, but, but actually, Father, I know he wasn't meant to be kept because he never belonged to you. And because he never belonged to you, he never belonged to me. Jesus couldn't keep Judas. Because he had never belonged, Judas never belonged to Jesus. But he says, Father, all the rest I've kept. And so Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to have to leave them. So, so now, Father, you're going to have to keep them. I've kept them in your name. But now I'm going, you're going to have to keep them, Father. I, I've kept them through the power of the name that you gave me. But now, Father, you keep them. And then he asked the Father. He wants them to be kept in two ways. Look at verse 15. Number Well, here they are. Kept from evil and kept for good. Kept from evil and kept for good. Verse 15, kept from evil. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. You know, the world, look at church, we can't forget this. The world is an evil place. Sin rules in this world. And Jesus actually says this about evil, that evil has a personality to it. That there's a personal evil, that there's a person. It, the devil, the evil one. You know, it's, it's delusional to not think that there isn't a personal devil who is evil out to seek, kill, kill, and destroy. Evil is not something that just like is floating around in the world. It's a person. It's a person. You know, I, uh, you guys know me. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a hockey nut. Okay, I just got to fess up. If you didn't know that about me. And so I have a subscription to the hockey news. I get my hockey news subscription. I was very excited because a new magazine showed up this week. 
And uh, I flipped it open, and they rated, you know, the logos. They took every logo of any, every NHL team, and they gave it a rating. And they said, this is the coolest one, this is whatever, you know. And number six was the New Jersey Devils. And so I read the little caption about the New Jersey Devils, and it says this, you know, this is a great classic logo, except for the fact that it's named after a scary myth. And it bugs me, man. I'm like, ugh. Satan, the devil, is not a myth. He's real. Jesus says, I pray, Father, that you would keep these men from the evil one. And it's interesting that, that as Jesus prays this, it's not that his followers are to withdraw from this world. You know, it's like a monastery was never Jesus' idea. To withdraw from the world. You know, yeah, it's true. It's easier to be a Christian in a monastery. It's easier to be a Christian at a Bible conference. It's easier to be a Christian on a Sunday morning when you gather with God's, God's people. But Jesus said, Father, I don't, want you to, I don't want to take them out of the world. I want them to be right in it. Jesus is not praying you out of this world. Jesus is praying that you'd be present for his name in this world. In full contact, involved, rubbing shoulders with people. Rubbing shoulders with everyone except the evil one. Kept not from evil, but for good. Kept for good. So kept from evil and kept for good. Jesus said, I'm not, not, he's not taking us out, but he's sending us into the world. Go, right? Those first words of the gospel, go. Just, if you, just as you've sent me into the world, so I'm sending them. Jesus came on the Father's mission, and now Jesus says, and now you've got a job. Now you, my disciples, you have a job to do. And we read about Jesus. We know this, that Jesus had nothing to do with the evil one. He resisted him. He preached the word of God, proclaimed the word of God, hung to the promises of God when the devil would come and, and tempt him. But Jesus had nothing to do with the evil one. But other than that, he did this. He just mixed with people everywhere. He went everywhere. So much so that like people called him the friend of sinners. Jesus went to places that you and I would not want to hang out as Christians. Where we wouldn't go today. And you know, it's, as Jesus prays for these guys, he, he prays not that they would... He, sorry, Jesus prayed that we would become more concerned to just Mix with the world. Mix, mix with the world. But get away from the devil. Get away from evil. But mix with the world. Be present with people. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So I'm, I'm sending them, he says, Father, I'm, I'm sending them just as you sent me, so I'm praying for their sanctification. That they may be set apart from the evil one and that they would be set apart for good use. The word sanctify, it's like a churchy word, right? It just means to be set apart for God's use. That's what it means. I'm praying, Lord, they'd be set apart for your use. If you're sanctified, then God can use you. You're set apart. Set apart for good rather than for evil. And Jesus says sanctification happens. The way to be set apart is through the word of God. It's through truth, the truth of God's word. 
And then Jesus goes on, he begins to pray for those who are going to come to faith through the 12. So he prays for himself, prays, sorry, for the 11, and now he prays for the, the world that's to come, the whole, the whole church, that they might be unified and that they might share in this glory. Let's check it out, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made, you, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make, to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I think Jesus, as he's praying, this is pray, seen our generation, seen all the the years and decades and people coming to faith in his name because of these men. You know, like I said, if anyone's a Christian, it's because of the work of the apostles. If anyone's a Christian, it's because of this prayer that Jesus prayed. And I, and, and I think about that. It means that as Jesus prayed this, it wasn't wishful thinking for God to, for the Father to use the 11. Jesus prayed for all of us that would come. You know, one of the things that I've, I've been learning to pray is this, is to pray through people. Say, Lord, I'm not even praying for them. I'm praying for those who will come to faith through them. Praying for the next generation on the other side, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for those who are going to come to faith. Thank you, Lord, for those who are going to hear about Jesus because of their lives. You know, as Jesus prays for Believers through the ages, what's he concerned about? He's concerned about unity, that they would be one. It's he and the Father are one. You know, I think when we think about unity, it's easy to think that that's like uniformity. <laughs> that we all have to look the same, that we all have to have this quality or state of, you know, like soldiers, all in the same uniform, all dressed the same. But that's not unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean this either. Unity is not a union <laughs> in the sense that you join together, you know, for, for a, a cause like coming together and especially actually in the dictionary when I looked it up, the, the dictionary actually said this, the action of joining together or the fact of being joined together, especially in a political context. Jesus didn't pray for a union. He wasn't forming local 407. He prayed for unity. And unity is not something that you organize. You know, you think about, one of the things we often ask about unity is like, Lord, why is there so many denominations, you know? What's with all these Christians? How come there's like these guys over here and these ones here and these teach this and over here and over there? What's the unity that, I would ask this, what is the unity that Jesus prayed for? If we think about all the denominations and why is there some, what was Jesus praying for? 
Jesus was praying for a consensus between his people, that they would have the same heart, that they would have the same mind, that their wills would act alike, that they would have the same heart for the name of Jesus. Boy, you know, they could dress the same, different. Worship could be different. Some could meet in old sanctuaries and churches. Others could meet in nightclubs. But the heart should be the same for Jesus. And Jesus says, I pray that they would be like you and me, Father. I pray that their relationship with one another would be like my relationship with you, that they would be one as you and I are one. You know, I think about that. That wasn't an outward visible unity with union patches on your lunchbox or your jacket or something. It wasn't an outward visible unity. Unity. When you looked at the Father and the Son, you, couldn't, you, couldn't, you can't see that unity. It's not visible outside of the two people, the Father and the Son. But guess what? The Father and Son have harmony in their thought. The Father and their Son have harmony in their hearts. They've got the same heart, the same mind, the same will, so that whether they're together or whether they're apart, they exist for the same purpose. Whatever the Father would say, the Son would say. And you know, I would, I would say this, it shouldn't matter what church you go to. If Jesus is preached and the gospel is preached, then amen, I'm cheering for you. And you know, in the kingdom of God, it's so easy to be a critic. Look at the kingdom of God doesn't need more critics. The kingdom of God needs more cheerleaders. And if people are preaching Jesus, then God bless them. Amen, we pray for them. If they're not, we call it for what it is. We don't have unity with those who don't preach Jesus. They don't have the same heart as us. They don't have the same mind as us. But if they preach Jesus and it looks like whatever it looks like, I don't care. If he's glorified, then we cheer. We cheer. So what do we do about unity? You know, that's what this makes me wonder, you know. Well, I want to tell you this, that unity is something that Jesus has accomplished, not something that we manufacture. I don't think the churches get together and we're like, this is so awesome, we got unity. I'm like, it totally bugs me. I'm sorry, I'm going to just tell you this right now. I have told the local pastors, I want to tell you this, I told the local pastors, I said, if we get together on Good Friday and this becomes about unity, CTK is out. We're out. So you better not make this about unity. I told them, you guys. I said, we better preach Jesus and Jesus crucified and Jesus raised from the dead. And as far as that's preached, then we're in. But the second the theme becomes unity, we're out. And you show me a group of Christians in which Jesus' glory is shown. You know, a, a, a group of men who've severed themselves from the devil, a group of women who have severed themselves from the devil, and they're seeking to be in, incarnational and present and serving Jesus, people who accept the word of God and love the word of God and treat the word of God as true. And I will show you a group of people who are thinking and feeling and acting alike and they are a people who are unified in the name of Jesus. And nothing convinces the world so much that Jesus is supernatural, that Jesus is real, that Jesus is a savior and that God loves them as when people see God's people loving one another, unified, different backgrounds, different temp temperaments, different 
different cultures, but worshiping and loving Jesus together in unity. Look at verse 24 again. Father, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made you known to them, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be sorry. I feel like I'm tripping over my tongue this morning when I read. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know, Jesus was excited about something. Jesus was looking forward to something. Jesus was looking forward to unity in heaven. He said, Father, I'd like to bring these 11 men to heaven right now. That they could be with me. That they could see the glory that I had with you before I came to earth. And so that they could see what heaven's like. And so I would tell you this unity that Jesus prays for, it's not just a unity that's on earth, but, but Jesus is looking forward to sharing this unity with us in heaven. You know, five minutes after you die, your denominational, you know, label will be gone. <laughs> well, I went to Calvary Chapel. Do I get a front seat in heaven? Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Reformed, Calvinist, Arminianist. It's all gone, you guys. Some people might be surprised to find out Jesus isn't a Calvinist when they get to heaven. It'll all be gone. It'll be about Jesus. It'll be about Jesus. And there will be unity. And that unity will be because of being in the presence of Jesus. It's the fruit. Unity is the fruit of being in the presence of Jesus. You know, think about having the wonder and the love and the praise and the glory of God. We'll see it and we'll behold him. And there'll be harmony in our hearts and in our minds towards Jesus and towards one another. And so Jesus finishes this prayer where he began. Praise it. The world does not know you, Father, but these men, they know you. You know that that's a, actually a difference between the world and the followers of Jesus. The difference is this. You either know God personally or you don't. That's the division in the world. You either know God personally or you don't. It's not those who believe in God and those who don't. Don't make that mistake. Scripture says even the demons believe in God. It's not those who believe in God and those who don't. It's whether you believe the one you know is there. You can believe about God. Do you believe God? Do you believe in His Son? This is what Christmas is about, church. It's Christmas. The Father has sent a gift into the world that all who receive that gift may have eternal life. That gift's name is Jesus Christ. In this world, when we talk about Christmas, this world lacks love and joy and glory for this reason. 
the world doesn't know Jesus. But church, we know Jesus. We have Jesus. We know the Father because the Father is made known to us through the Son. Man, glory to be to Jesus. Glory to the Father. That's what Jesus said. Father, glorify me that you may receive glory. So our job, church, is this. We glorify Jesus. Because when we glorify Jesus, the Father receives glory. Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Where it all began. In the glory that he had before this world began. Praise his name. And we're blessed because we share in his life. We're blessed because he's made his name known to us, the name of Jesus, the name above every other name. We're blessed because we have his word. Let's live for King Jesus. Let's pray. Invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for who you are and what you've done, Lord. And Father, we... uh, We're thankful that Jesus has made you known to us. I thank you that we can say we know you. And Jesus, uh, we pray that you would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we give ourselves to you just this morning, afresh and anew. Lord, it's still morning time. Today, this Sunday, Lord, December 15th, we give ourselves to you. We pray, Lord, that in all of our lives and with everything that we have, that you would receive glory, that the name of Jesus would be glorified in us, that the Father may be glorified. And Father, I thank you that that as we give ourselves to you, that gives us confidence to live, Lord, knowing that all we have is from you, that you've given us everything that we have. May we treat it as it belongs to you, Lord. And may we thank you that that everything of your kingdom is at our disposal. And so, Lord, we, we surrender to you, Lord. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.